Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Try Love. This is the Literal Roundtable podcast where we uh, talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema or through it in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find our, our oh man, see how good I am at this, Chris. You can find our podcast at Try Love Podcast on Twitter. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. I am a gem who is ever ready in a bad scrape. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. Outside of Batman and probably Columbo, I'm the world's greatest detective. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I had nothing to do, so I hired all these guys to help me do it. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. This is a fucking silent film, so I didn't pick a line for this. But you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease if you want. His name is Aaron, and he's a complete ass killjoy. Uh, but oh, today on this yeah, on this very special episode of Trial of, we are welcome. Excuse me, we are pleased to welcome a special guest, Chris Polly from the Film Trace Podcast. Chris, hey, yeah, that's me. Uh, I am a film studies teacher in Columbia Heights, Minnesota, and I like to turn my students one hundred percent into forty percent. The place you can find me at is twitter.com slash q r h r i z. P-O-L-L-E-Y. Also, my podcast is called Film Trace. We're at film underscore trace. Excellent. Uh, and of course, your podcast, uh, as at least Apple describes it, is all about, and I quote, film's journey from conception to production to release. Um, having listened to a couple of episodes of Try Love, you're probably familiar with the fact that we don't really dive into that part of uh, making movies, or excuse me, talking about movies generally. Um, off the top, I want to know, what is your favorite piece of information about Sherlock Jr. from that perspective? Uh, I mean, you you can't get much better than uh, breaking your neck literally for a movie. Am I right? Uh, That's kind of an obvious answer. But yeah, I mean, well, podcasters, we're used to that kind of rough and tumble life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's true. Good point. It is a lethal profession, uh, the world's most first and most lethal profession. Uh, So with that as our scene setter, uh, Aaron, you tell us what this movie's about, would you? Yes, uh, this is Sherlock Jr., 1924 film directed by Buster Keaton. Uh, It's kind of takes a look at a young man uh, played by Buster Keaton who spends his time working at a movie theater, um, mostly kind of cleaning up trash and projecting the films. Um, And when he's not doing that, he's learning how to be a detective uh, and he's doing so by reading a book called how to be a detective. Uh, He also loves a young woman played by Catherine McGuire, um, but he lacks the money to really buy her nice gifts. Uh, The woman also has another suitor uh, who is known in this film as the local chic. Uh, Here, I think, referring to the use of the the term meaning um, someone who is kind of quite heavily concerned with uh, the way that they dress, kind of like a a dandy, something like that, uh, played here by Ward Crane, um, who also doesn't have any money, uh, but resorts to stealing the pocket watch owned by the young woman's father uh, in order to buy her a nice uh, kind of a a nice gift, a box of chocolates. he then frames Keaton's character for the crime. The young projectionist, uh, kind of dejected and sad and not a great detective, uh, falls asleep during a screening of a film and then imagines himself uh, in this film as a great detective known as uh, the great Sherlock Jr. Uh, this was a, a 
one film in a very long line of films that Buster Keaton was involved in. He was quite prolific uh, prolific during his life. Um, this film, though, is generally regarded, I think, as, as one of the best and also um, uh, one of the uh, greatest and, and kind of funniest movies uh, ever made, also known for its uh, uh, number of, of kind of great stunts in the film, one of which was alluded to earlier and we'll probably talk about in a bit. Uh, but Chris, um, uh, other than kind of, uh, you know, kind of that fun fact you mentioned earlier, I guess, what are your uh, general thoughts on the film? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's definitely probably one of my favorites, though that's not uh, too much of a surprise since, as you said, it's probably one of his most well-regarded, probably only after The General, maybe Steamboat Bill. I don't know. I think that uh, the one of the great things about Buster Keaton is, of course, that uh, it's he stands the test of time. It's not no so much about like uh, interpretation though. You definitely could go there. It's more just about visceral reactions and this uh, 45 minute um, film has it in spades. And it's really a, a great example of how you can't go wrong with a Buster Keaton movie because you're still going to be entertained even, you know, a hundred almost more years later. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like I said, we're, we're really going to be, um, relying on you pretty heavily. You're going to be our ace in the hole for like the making of this movie, the things that happened, how it came about. Uh, but we do want to dive into a lot of the, I guess, uh, extrasensory stuff that you might say about this movie. Um, off the bat, I want to give my top level thoughts uh, by starting uh, with, uh, uh, Cody and I saw this on Friday at the Trilon in a new uh, 4K restoration. It uh, looks really beautiful. does not look uh, like how you would typically imagine a silent film to look. That's probably a facile thing for me to say, um, but it is very, it looks very nice. And uh, the, the core, like the differentiator here for having watched it at the Trilon is that Dreamland Faces, uh, frequent collaborators uh, with the Trilon in their presentations, gave the live score to this movie. So it was really the 1924 experience to see live music alongside this film, um, which always just, you know, just tickles me. Uh, you tend to lose yourself in it. You tend to forget that there are people right in front of you performing, uh, but it's always an excellent experience. So I just want to give a quick shout out to Dreamland Faces and to the Trilon for setting that up uh, consistently. It's always an awesome experience. Um and uh, in, as far as the actual movie itself, um, I am still, you know, having little experience, not none, but little experience with film uh, this early or this, um, you know, influential, I guess. I'm always astounded at how just like aware of the audience it actually is. And I'm attributing that probably to direction and par probably partially to, um, you know, uh, cinematography and editing and stuff, but just like where people are going to be looking on the screen where they're going to be focused uh you know what will get them reacting the timing and everything it's just for me it's a lot to consider that it's also radically different from how it might play in real life and yet the people who made it have just sort of a laser focused concept of all these mechanical elements that just still hit and like chris said it still hits you know almost 100 years later um and it still lands every joke is still like you still see the setup and the t and the punchline and the aftermath in just such incredible uh pacing and um i think like that is that's what i'm going to remember most about this movie i do want to dive into uh the also there's a pretty significant like dream slash cinema element which i've heard and re seen referenced uh in a few different reviews and critical appraisals both uh you know from recent years and uh, excuse me from past uh you know critical eras and today um about how it sort of like has you know quote some, something to say uh as most you know 
facile reviews say about you know the blend of dreams and cinema and reality and sort of the influence of what uh you know the moving picture would do to people's imaginations and that sort of thing uh in this movie while while a basic portrayal of that which we can get into later uh it seems to have only been approached from that very um basic and very like low perspective standpoint critically i do want to see if we can't uh you know burnish that concept a little bit figure out um if there's something more to the way that this movie was put together uh, and sort of like the incorporation of that into such early um you know fantastical cinema like this uh but uh for right now i need to make a quick getaway and um it looks like cody is dressed up as an old maid of some kind so i'm gonna dive right through this uh suitcase that's he's got right positioned right in front of him and he's gonna like walk away with the next argument cody yep there you go and away i walk um i can walk and talk here uh but yeah uh, thank you jason uh like he said he and i saw this at the trilon uh great crowd shout out to dreamland faces the um the only other keaton feature i've seen is uh, the cameraman and i've seen a few of his shorts as well um the balloonatic and i think cops is the other one and um so i'm i'm pretty fresh and new to his work but a lot of what he's doing feels um or felt you know very familiar and comfortable in all likelihood because lots of artists have been inspired by his work over uh, the many years um like I, I guess my my the one I latched onto right away, sort of watching the hyper efficient uh, pacing of the gags and the uh, it, sort of ever so often gestures at the camera. It felt like I was watching like an extended episode of Looney Tunes, but with a version of Bugs Bunny who maybe isn't so uh, self assured. And um, I I'm not so hot take. That's uh, a very fun flavor of comedy. I like it, and it turns out a lot of people like it too. Because I mean, like Chris said, Keaton's work and this movie in particular have held up. Uh, super well over the last century or so. Um, See, so yeah, I, I didn't know anything really about this movie going in. The The fact that roughly half of it took place in a sort of um, cinematic dream sequence um, was... Uh, a, a fun little shock, you know, a, a sort of fantasy world in which the projectionist perceived best version of himself could go forth and save the day. Um, for this kind of story, I think that's like that as a narrative device is really fun. It allowed for some really uh, uh, neat camera trickery uh, with the dream version of him um, sort of superimposed and, and rising from his body. And then, you know, later you see him going into the movie screen and, and reacting to the new environments that are rapidly changing before him. Um, it, it also made for a, a nice downbeat sort of on the other end of like the emotional spectrum. Once he wakes up from his dream, he looks out of the theater, realizes he, you know, didn't do all those things in the physical world. And um, it's like a, a strangely somber note. And, um, you know, it, it, for somebody who is so good at deadpan, Keaton sort of brings that deadpan in for this, you know, he just, he's looking straight ahead at the camera and you, you sort of, there's this, this twang of sadness to it that I thought landed super well. So, um, I don't know, all that is to say, like, you know, it was striking to see that sort of retooled after seeing so much slapstick. Um, and that really brought the movie to a, a nice momentary crescendo. Um, but I'm sort of rambling here all in all, like, you know, this is a, a lot of scenes of pretty perfect comedy outside of Chaplin's greatest hits. Silent era comedy is, uh, certainly a blind spot for me. And, um, you know, I, I, though I am so inexperienced with it, this does, this movie does feel like a good way in, you know, as good of a way in as any work, uh, that I know of. And it's easy, very easy to tell whether the trial would pair films like this alongside, you know, Jackie Chan, Chan films, you know, uh, Jackie Chan, an artist who is 
similarly very obviously concerned with um, doing justice to the spectacle and integrating physical movement along with comedy. Um, so again, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, though I should admit, I'm a beginner when it comes to this next part. Uh, so let me just consult my book here. Okay, uh, step one, ask Harry what he thought about the film. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, then Harry, what did you think of Sherlock Jr.? Hey, thanks, Cody. Um, I thought it was kind of you both not to bring this up. I did not see this at the Trilon with Dreamland Faces because me and friend of the pod, Eric, were hanging out. Shout outs to Eric and uh, came a striding up to the front doors of the Trilon at 7.05 about only to discover that said showing was sold out because I didn't realize that it was Dreamland Faces. And I take the Trilon for granted despite making a podcast about it. So apologies to the Trilon. I did watch it this morning on my laptop. So uh, second apologies to Buster Keaton and fan cinephiles everywhere, I suppose. Um, despite all of that, I really, really love this movie. Um, there were two th big things I really wanted to talk about. Jason, you covered the first one um, in brief when you talked about the relationship to cinema. It's wild to me that this could be, and I don't know if this is true, right, because I'm a neophyte, but it might be the first movie about movies, or at least a very early example of that sort of very now Oscar-baity idea of making a movie that sort of is formally about the power and magic of movies and escapism, and how escapism applies to our life. I really liked that. I think that this is a surprisingly sharp class movie on those... Um, parameters as well. And I think that the dream and idealism behind this movie that, uh, that arts and cinema and sort of um, escapism gives people a vector to better understand what they want the world to be and how they want to be themselves. And actually in enacting that in their sort of dreams or seeing it portrayed in representationally on screen, it gives them this sort of ability to um, internalize that aspect of themselves, even if they don't have the ability to affect it in reality, right? Uh, we see Buster Keaton's character um, sort of see the world as it should be or as he would like it to be on screen. And even though that's not the world that he has, it ultimately becomes something like what he can have because he is able to sort of like uh, internalize the sort of um, personhood that he would have if he were the Sherlock Jr. detective, right? So that was really great. Um, I was also just like, always shocked by how um, these movies are, if anything, funnier than they must have been. I, I was reading some of the contemporary reviews and they're super weird and wild to read because a lot of them are like, this was okay. you know. And I'm like, how could you possibly at any time have thought this was only okay? I mean, it's mind-blowing in 2021, right? But I think that there's some kind of strange thing where because the jokes feel so contemporaneous and so sharp, despite the passage of time, something about that makes them feel even more exciting, right? Maybe it's the soft bigotry of low expectations or something along those lines, but I'm always really shocked when I find myself really like laughing without reservation at Buster Keaton movies, even though I've yet to encounter one that didn't make me feel that way. So that's something that's really exciting. Um, and just sort of beyond that, like Chris was mentioning, it is just on a purely sort of like physical, logistical, technical um perspective a complete marvel i mean the the final chase scene in particular is just mind-blowing even now and is more fun to watch than most action scenes i've ever seen in movies right and so and that's on top of everything else so it's it's a really great movie and in a really thoughtful movie um and a hilarious one as well um and now i have 
picked up uh, Aaron on the front of my motorbike, but moments later, I fell off of the back of it, leaving him to uh, flail on the handlebars as it continues traveling. However, he doesn't know that I'm gone, so he still thinks that um, I'm driving. But you are now, in fact, driving Aaron. Thank you. I'm in the driver's seat. Uh, I, I am not overly familiar uh, with Keaton's films. Um, uh, funnily enough, my, my dad would always reference them growing up. Uh, and I feel like I probably did see a few when I was like really young. Uh, but I don't, I don't really remember. Uh, the thing that he would always reference uh, the most was the, uh, the stunt with the house from Steamboat Bill Jr., which is probably Keaton's most famous stunt. But he would like talk, I would be watching some dumb action movie, and he would, in a very old man kind of way, uh, bring up how like, movies used to be better uh, even despite this film being like so much before his time too uh but he would always reference that scene with uh, the house falling around uh buster keaton um but but i am you know someone who kind of growing up i always loved physical acting uh and comedy that includes uh, some of the discussions we've had recently about you know martial arts films and whatnot uh whatnot um this does feel kind of right up my alley i think that uh one thing that kind of harry talked about was that this film is you know, very much about the power of fiction to kind of influence real life and how you can take messages and um, you can take uh, the character of someone from a film and you can kind of take elements of that and, and use it to improve your own situation. Um, and I think that is maybe slightly uh, ironic, given that the thing that I thought so much while watching this movie is like how much of this movie um, actually is real life, right? Uh, the physical comedy, um, you know, how many times he almost, I'm sure, got killed making this thing, right? <laughs> Great uh, it's, point. It's, right. It's, 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 um, it's, it's funny. Uh, and then also, uh, while watching this, because I, I did uh, watch this similar to Harry, uh, not at the Trilon, because I, I don't live in Minnesota anymore, but um, there is like an aspect of watching this uh, on your computer, or on like a TV or, or whatever, that is kind of useful. Uh, and that I found myself rewinding this film over and over again, uh, which is maybe a bad, like, film watching thing to do uh but it, it feels necessary and that there's like a lot of like very genuine movie magic with a lot of these stunts right i mean the there's a lot of like the physical stunts that are really wild that you can point to but like the the, the suitcase scene where there's the the old woman like selling ties or whatever and keaton jumps through uh her chest and it's like how did that happen and i rewound that like four times right um and there's an aspect of watching that in the theater where like you watch that and then it's gone, right? And the only thing you have is your like memory, very imperfect, and you have to kind of piece together like, wait, what even just happened based on that? And I rewound like six different stunts in this movie like three or four times, just like trying to watch that. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and in general, I felt while watching this movie kind of similar to the, the way that I felt while watching um, Drunken Master 2 uh, or, or even uh, uh, the films of Jacques Tati, which we uh, discussed earlier this year. If, you know, if you think of something like Playtime or My Uncle, although they're not as physical, uh, they are kind of very similar uh, in in their comedic stylings and trappings. And I, I watching Sherlock Jr. like watching something like Drunken Master or Playtime, it feels like it's a treat to watch. And it feels like it is in a weird way, kind of the ultimate evolution of like filmmaking uh, in, a, in, a, in a weird way. So, um, yeah, I, I really love this film. Uh, again, Keaton is like so prolific, but uh, I, I, I think I'm going to go and try and watch a bunch of his other stuff because uh, it was quite an enjoyable watch. Indeed. Um, the one thing that I brought up with Cody outside of the trial on after, after watching was just how, I guess, contemporary a lot of that feels. And the comparison I drew was 
um, to Mad Max Fury Road, as I do, as I it is apparently the only other film I've actually seen. Um, I have just pretended at having watched the others. I'm usually asleep. Getting but, Mad Max uh, vibes from this. Get, getting huge Mad Max vibes from this, says the guy who's only seen Mad Max before. Uh, but no, just like the concept, and I'm sure this has already been chronologued. I'm sure this is not an original idea, but just the idea that of keeping like things very much in audience purview and in with them in mind is something that I'm still blown away by as as like when you can watch a number of other movies even good ones that just don't do the same thing because it's to a very specific end to getting like a physiological response um I think what Cody was saying about that twang of sadness and humanity that appears when Buster Keaton actually looks at the camera or when he's um you know especially near that final scene where he's like mirroring what's going on on the screen in the movie uh to like woo and romance the girl he loves uh, like, I think that is just a really wise deployment of that audience focus of, you know, breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. Like there's another moment during, um, the motorcycle scene where, uh, Buster looks at the camera, like in, in not a, not a diegetic way in a very much like, are you seeing this shit? Like, can you believe this shit is going on type way that I just did not expect from a movie of this time? I, I expected like the people on screen and the people in the audience are supposed to be two different worlds. And like, there will be a natural friction there. There will be a natural gap, but there is, there is none. It is a seamless like audience experience, which makes it weird, to, weird to feel like, excuse me. It makes saying that this movie is like an artifact or like an element of its time feels strange. I think that's one of the biggest reasons that it feels timeless now is because it is like the underlying spirit of any good movie that's uh, been made to like a physically comedic end in the last hundred years has used this exact same thing. You look at Jackie Chan films, uh, you look at, um, you know, Samuel Hung films, you look at films from all, you know, all stripes from, um, you know, martial arts and, uh, you know, more purely slapstick, uh, the Marx brothers and all that, like they've all used this same concept of just knowing where your audience is emotionally and where they're going to be looking on screen in order to develop that, um, you know, that very specific comedic flavoring and to, you know, keep it up for, uh, five minutes, let alone 45 minutes, let alone like some of the longer features, 75, 80 minutes is just insane to me. It's like an endurance run. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And, and to me, it's like it's even beyond sort of that anticipation. I, when I think about movies, especially like this, um, I think a lot about like active conditioning of the audience. Like, for instance, this is a movie that is all about sort of like thoughtfulness about frames and about stories within stories, right? Like even Sherlock Jr. sort of alludes to that. He's modeling his life after sort of um, uh, a known fictional character. And there are so many frames within frames in this movie. It's so thoughtful with where you're looking at any time, as you said, Jason. Mm -hmm. Like when when Buster Keaton's running on the train, he's almost out of frame because the, the train is the thing that's taking up the actual frame. Uh, there's the super famous train that's coming straight at the viewer um, scene, which actually like people freaked out about. Um, this has like got to be one of the earliest instances of a character that moves up to and then through a movie screen, which to see that in a movie is such a great conditioning tactic because yeah, Inception can go get fucked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, now you're thinking, you're thinking about artifice, right? And you're thinking about the fourth wall and you're thinking about what it means that he is a character in a movie, in a movie at that point. Right. And like it, to, to do all of that and to get your audience there thinking about it, um, 
is is one form of conditioning. And then there's another one operating here, which is an, an, the sort of thing that Jackie Chan movies do too, which is just this amazing creativity that they inspire, right? Because they get you to see everyday objects and situations in a way that you might never have seen them before, right? Like I'm thinking now about how the four-wheel brakes means that the front, the top of the car has to fly off of the bottom of the car, which like- Oh my God, when, that was my favorite bit. It, yeah, when you think about it, it totally makes sense that that would happen from like a physical perspective, but you had never thought about that before. And then he raises the um, the retractable roof to make it a sail so that they can sail. And it's like, how do you think of something like that, right? But it, and it, it's like you're thinking about the fact that this is a character's dream. So like this is a very obviously a creative, sensitive person who's coming up with this. But it's also like Aaron said, it's real life, right? So it's like Buster Keaton actually thought of this and he's actually doing it. And there's something really deeply inspirational about that from like a formal perspective, right? Because it's supposed to be inspiring. It's supposed to be conditioning. You're supposed to see this and leave thinking about the world in just a little bit of a different way, right? In maybe in a in a more creative way or maybe you're supposed to be thinking of yourself sort of as the hero of your own story in a more profound way or you're supposed to be doing sort of what Buster Keaton's character does at the end of this movie and sort of like you you can take some uh you can model some behavior after this right I, I love that final scene in the movie it's one of my maybe like all-time favorite movie endings where he just continuously looks up at the screen and then models his behavior after the movie protagonist because it's such a like perfect denouement for the entire thing we had just seen and the way it's shot is so spectacular too where like it keeps showing his perspective looking out the um, projectionist booth at the main screen. And then the camera turns around and you actually see the inside of the projectionist booth so that he is still framed as if he were himself in a movie. Ooh, man, it's just, wow, there's so much going on. It's like on top of everything else, on top of being such an incredible stuntman, on top of being such a great comedic force, this is like a cinemagraphic tour de force as well, right? Like I, the thoughtfulness of this filmmaking is really, really awe-inspiring, in my opinion. Totally agree on all the fronts there, Harry. But I think that one thing in particular that made me want to jump in here is that uh, – I can't help every time I watch Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin to a certain degree and other uh, kind of magicians from that era is how similar it feels when you're a kid watching a magician, even like the most, you know, basic, lowly rent by the hour magicians, that sense of wonder that you feel and you automatically want to find out how the trick was made, right? And the fact that, as you said, you get to literally go into the projectionist booth and you get hints uh, here and there about how it was made. And maybe that works even more in our favor 100 years later because uh, film geeks like us have been wondering about how the magic of movies are made. And that's literally where the cliche comes from, perhaps that idea of how did they come up with this and how did they execute it, especially without, you know, the aid of computers um, and, and any, any other really like analog practical effects. So I think that um, one piece that sticks with me so many years later, I feel like maybe I saw a clip of this in a film studies class back in college. Um, and I remember feeling that kind of childlike sense of awe and then to kind of get transported back to that when revisiting it to discuss it on this podcast was really um amazing not unlike the kind of feeling you get when you are uh like i mentioned watching a magic show as a kid but also like as a adult where you still feel like 
that sense of um, transportation of uh, putting your shoe, putting yourself in the shoes of a fictional hero, um, so to speak. Um, Ryan Sanderson has a good essay on uh, Trilon's Perisphere blog about uh, what it's like to watch this movie with an audience. Uh, and unfortunately, I've never had that experience, except like I said, with you know a small group of uh, sleepy twenty-year-olds in college, and how it kind of has this kind of thunderous uh reaction where you don't really get a sense of it being a movie where you are like trying to understand the plot machinations and the character development but it's strictly a sense of just like uproarious joy you guys pointed to the fact that like the comedy is just as impressive as the physical gags and that's another thing that i think a lot of those jackie chan movies have in common too where it's not just trying to make your eyes pop out like an action movie does but it's trying to like literally like bring you visceral joy and by being able to do that in a way that is you know twofold uh adding on to like the the meta aspect of it being one of the early movies about movie making um really does make it uh unforgettable yeah i um the 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 point about it like bringing joy especially the comparison to action films is i think very interesting because um the one of the the bits of information that's on the, the wikipedia here is that this the gag where the he keaton breaks really hard and then the the, the body kind of shoots forward while the, the rest of the car remains behind. Uh, that was, that was reused in uh, another bond film, the living daylights. Um, and that kind of got me thinking about like a lot of those old bond films, which is uh, you know, those are films that I grew up on. Those are films that have most in most examples, not aged great. Um, a lot of them are kind of hard to go back to for one reason or the other. Uh, but they are films that, you know, if not being, you know, Keaton films or Chaplin films did have kind of elements of, uh, you know, kind of physical action in comedy um, quite a bit more than than what you might see today. Right. And that I don't think there's a blockbuster movie probably over the past five or ten years that has um, if you're just taking the action on screen as literal that has. Um, you know, kind of less uh, physical things uh, th than what's in a film like this. But it's all, of course, it's, you know, it's movie magic, right? It's faked, it's CGI. It's, um, uh, there are, of course, some elements of stunts uh, in those films. Um, but even like if I think of like recent James Bond movies, some of which I've liked quite a bit, uh, but I compare to uh, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, which is a very bad James Bond movie, uh, but has probably the most one of the most impressive stunts ever put uh, on film, which is uh, uh, kind of a, a notorious one at this point because it has a stunt where James Bond goes over like a corkscrew over a river and uh, some editor put a slide whistle uh, over it and it kind of ruins the whole scene despite the fact it's like <laughs> one of the most amazing stunts. There's like a, there's like a ridiculous like whoop, whoop, and it's, it's go look it up. It's, it's terrible, but it's an amazing stunt and it's like it, despite movies like kind of increasing in like scale and epicness in this manner, um, there is kind of this physical element that I really appreciate of even movies that are like undeniably worse. Right. And like, not that Sherlock jr is one of those movies, but like, it does kind of make me think that like, there were a lot of movies like, uh, even a few decades ago that like had those physical elements. And even if everything else around it was pretty terrible, um, I maybe prefer watching them just for those kind of rare moments that come through. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's like that <clears throat> really good point that that Chris made, where he used the metaphor of the magician. It's like you just don't get that when the mystery is solved, right? I guess it's like these movies all operate on multiple levels, and in addition to the the plot and themic and formal uh, moves that this movie is making, it's also a spectacle, right? And it was made for that as much as it was made to tell a story or to have a narrative. It was made to do that sort of joy bringing that Chris alluded to, and I I think that you definitely. I mean. This is where I sound like I'm just a grumpy old man, right? But I think you lose a lot of that in CGI, right? Because then you don't have to think about, you don't have to pour over the film the way that you did, Aaron, and think like, how did he do that, right? You don't get that sense of like, it seems impossible that they made that happen. So now I want to know why. And there's something about that mystery solving, no pun intended with the uh, theme of the movie, right? But um that is sort of like, it, it awakens like a creativity in you, right? Like that something about that spectacle makes you want to learn more and makes you want to experience more in a way that when it's a solved problem in CGI, you just don't get that, that flatness or it, it just, it, it takes on a much more flat perspective, right? Where like, even in a really great CGI action scene where I can understand why uh, they're making the moves they are making from like a narrative or a thematic perspective, I'm not thinking about literally how they did it, which it is interesting, right? Because I, I guess I can see the argument for that getting in the way of the storytelling itself. But I do want that, right? Like, I want that to be a part of the idea. I want to sort of be thinking about the movie as craft and as um, labor while I'm thinking about it as storytelling. And there's a whole other point there, right? Which is really interesting that maybe we can get into. But like, especially when you think about the history of CGI and how like the one of the big reasons why CGI is used now is because it's... Uh, non-union and it's much, much cheaper to pay uh, CGI people than it is to set up practical effects and like work with a union of uh, laboring stunt, stunt people. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting that like there is that whole sort of like history of the labor struggle beneath all of that. Um, and like, I think this movie sort of gets, gets at that right in a really interesting way because of how democratizing it's trying to be in the sense that like, Buster Keaton's character is just this guy, but he is able to have this experience by dreaming, right? And that gives him the sort of like, if not courage, then at least the the um, inspiration to do other things with himself. Uh, and it's a celebration of that. So like, there's a really interesting intersection there, I guess. Um, that's sort of tangential, but, you know. Yeah, I think that... Uh the point you made about the marriage of uh, narrative and magic or marriage and marriage of uh, narrative and spectacle, Harry is a, is a really on point one because uh, I feel like a lot of times in modern cinema, you have to choose between the two uh, rather than, you know, have it so effortlessly put in front of you like Keaton does here and, or like Chan did in the nineties. Um, I think in one rare instance, I don't even know why I didn't think of this until now, but you mentioning that made me think that uh, pretty much like the only modern example I've had of that, like uh, James Bond was mentioned, and I think there there's definitely arguments to be made there, but actually just this year, uh, and <laughs> I, I feel like it hasn't been talked enough about, so it might be like a weird bias that I have or a certain state of mind I might have been in when I watched it, but the Eric Andre movie, Bad Trip, where they tried to like take the jackass style and marry it with uh, a narrative. And it was definitely 
forced and didn't always work, but it was a particularly interesting, I think, fresh um, kind of take that I kind of remember realizing harks back to to Keaton in a way that maybe wasn't intentional or conscious, but definitely there where it's about what's happening in real life in front of you, just like what was ha- what Keaton was doing either with trickery or without just pure stunt work um, in his early work and Chaplin and the list goes on. That's a, that's a, that's a really good point. I feel like there's, um, I feel like you could definitely connect, uh, you could make some sort of connective tissue between like the, the fictional, but like, you know, obviously real stunts of like a a lot of early Hollywood, you know, Keaton and whatnot. And you could connect it to the popularity of, uh, you know, kind of like prank and in kind of stunt, uh, shows, you know, starting with something like Jackass, but like, you know, Borat and the, the film you just mentioned as well. I think you could, you could make that argument. I was kind of, what I was going to do, and Jason, feel free to rein me in if this is too off topic, but like, I was kind of thinking about like what, um, what serves that purpose today? And I think that that's a great example. I think the only other thing that I can really think of is like, if I think of like the popularity, and this is something that I've kind of complained about, but like the popularity of like really long tracking shots in action movies recently uh, over the past few years. Yeah, I think that's one thing where like a lot of those are, are like faked. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know, get the scene how you need it. Right. But like, uh, I do think that like long tracking shots, um, not just in something like children of men or, um, you know, like true detective, but, but Marvel was doing it for a while with uh, at least their TV shows. Um, daredevil had one. Um, I think those are, even though they're often faked, there is an element to those where it's like, because there, there is no, there's very little editing. There are no cuts here or no obvious cuts here. I do think that it has a lot of the same, um, kind of appeal that something like that the that these stunts did right where it's like we really had this kind of choreography down right we really had these actors really practicing their moves and we're going to make it even if it doesn't look maybe as realistic as a, a fully edited scene there's kind of a, a very visceral appeal appeal there that i think kind of fits in with um uh, uh some of the stuff in in sherlock jr even if i think that they've been doing it too much recently but yeah yeah, I think we're we're getting in a really interesting sort of um through line in like the history of cinema right now, right? Where I'm thinking now about how and again, I mean there there might be a nefarious um sort of undercurrent to this, but legitimately I feel like the reason why that marriage of of craft and sort of um the the like hard uh like crunchiness of movies, like the idea that you're supposed to think about them as works, as sort of process and um story, I think that there has been like a conscious movement to set those in conflict with one another right where like there's there's some suggestion that if the if the uh if the person is aware that they're watching a movie you've done something wrong right i think that like that's a real sensibility in modern blockbusters for whatever reason is that like we really need to get these people invested to the point where they forget that what they're watching is something that was created by humans Um, which is an interesting one. And again, maybe it has to do with like the invisibility of labor and everything, but maybe it just has to do with like, that's what you think uh, proper storytelling is, is that like you should get somebody invested. And if they're thinking about the way that this was shot, that's probably not investment. Um, It's also really interesting that we all thought of different examples. And that kind of uh, shows how wide reaching this particular sensibility of sort of um, 
like hyper visible, hyper thoughtful, and obviously sort of like um, audience uh, involving um, approaches to to cinema are because like what I thought of, and maybe this is another weird example, but I thought of like Tom Cruise's increasing profile as the like crazy guy in action movies, right? Where like when you see a Tom Cruise movie, you're thinking about first and foremost, Tom Cruise as icon almost, right? And like the marketing that follows the Mission Impossible movies around increasingly is like, what is the stunt going to be, right? Like what is the crazy practical effect that they're going to pull off in this movie that is maybe going to get Tom Cruise killed going to do? And that is like the only example in modern cinema I can think of that traces back that sort of like Jackie Chan as action icon, Buster Keaton as Jackie, action icon thing and it's really interesting because it's like there's some relationship there to celebrity as well right where like you kind of it could be a liability in some other works because you don't want them to be thinking about action star tom cruise you want them to be thinking about your character in your movie right and there's something really interesting about that tension and the way that movies like this can actually reconcile that tension without it feeling like they're compromising on anything right because i and i wonder if the through line there is comedy and the way that comedy sort of creates that um that almost sort sort of like conspiratorial in between the audience and the uh movie that you were talking about chris where like there's that joy that makes us feel like we're all sort of united which is maybe part of why um watching this with an audience must be so interesting but i i just wonder about that um, that specific notion of sort of like uh, movie as craft versus movie as art narrative and where we sort of fall on that, because I feel like that's a weird sort of conflict that's been playing out for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I agreed. I, I guess I should say I don't have any new examples to bring to the table. We had a nice run there. Um, but the I, the um, kind of contemporary example of like tracking shots as the I, don't, I, I think that's a really fascinating conversation. We like we don't necessarily need to to like go through all of it today, and I'm certainly not like smart enough to expand upon that. But that that is like thinking about tracking shots and how you know everybody you know we watched Gravity or we watched Children of Men or whatever, and like filmmakers eventually decided in certain cases to like make that the norm instead of like beyond. Okay, this is like this is the necessity and we're like, we're using this shot in like specific ways, this, you know, long take to like do a very specific thing instead of um, like turning it into like sort of a gimmick, I, I guess. Right. It's when, not, it, like, when it became a trope rather than a feature. Right. Yeah. Trope is, yeah. Trope is maybe even a, a better term for it. And like that you like, I guess circling it back to, to Sherlock Jr. That's never like that never become like, that's never the case, like for a lot of reasons, right? Like uh, Keaton is always doing something different. Um, like the one scene that you can maybe think of, and I was thinking about this while, while watching um, like as when he starts to, to, when he first falls asleep and then wakes up in, you know, this, this different world, this dream world, um, you know, he goes up on the screen and it's that like changing, um, like that, that background or the environments he's in, like, is like, it, they keep changing and we stay with that longer than I would have thought. Not that it overstayed its welcome. I just like became acutely aware of like, this is not, you know, serving the narrative explicitly in the way that, that we might think, but it's also like, again, it's not overstaying its welcome. It's not like, 
if we think back to something like the Andromeda strain, um, I know there are other examples that we've done on this pod and we don't necessarily need to keep coming back to that movie. That's always the first one I think of though, when it comes to like movies where we're like moving scene to scene and like the purpose of those scenes is to almost like showcase new technology and like kind of like, you know, the movie flexes on us a little bit and like, when the those environments were changing in Sherlock Jr., uh, when he was, you know, when Keaton was on the screen reacting to everything, that felt like a flex. But, you know, it, like the environments were very, like they were different and he was reacting to them in like different ways. He was contorting his body in like, you know, he he had to, you know, jump aside or like fell in a pit or like dove into a, a pit of snow. Um, and like at, at the very least, it's, you know, that scene helps us, you know, helps establish that we're in this sort of new, we're in this new dream world. This is, you know, different from the reality we're used to. And like, yeah, we lingered on it a little bit and it, I don't know for as much as you can say, there's like a narrative of Sherlock jr. It maybe didn't cater to that explicitly, but um, I don't just like, especially in this, you know, this 1924 ish world of cinema, just like taking a moment to to show what is possible on screen while also like bringing in one of the best physical performers you know in the history of mankind it turns out to like help illustrate those while being sort of in character uh as a version of himself is like it's welcome and it's yeah it's it's not you know it, it doesn't tie back to those like tired uh contemporary tropes uh tropes that um that we've been talking about i think yeah, absolutely. Uh, between what you and Harry both said, like there is a clear delineation here. I wasn't considering that this movie is less interested in like sweeping you away or making you think about the subject of what's going on and more like just leaving you awestruck at what is actually happening and really focusing on like the people that are doing it and the how there's that whole the I keep coming back to the magician analogy that Chris brought up, but it is very much like that. Uh, Chris, I want to keep putting you on the spot a little bit if I can. Um, like one of the last points I wanted to talk about with this movie is like, and we've talked a little bit about the uh, movie within movie type thing, but there is, do you get a sense, excuse me, a sense for like what the movie is doing textually or subtextually with that whole relationship of dreams to media, to cinema, to, uh, you know, movies within movies, all that kind of stuff. And sort of where that idea went, uh, as Hollywood aged. That's a great question. I think that you have a lot of time, between the silent era when where this movie comes from and when a lot of more high profile directors at least started playing with it uh, one of the common examples i hate uttering his name but is woody allen's uh, purple rose of cairo which isn't until Ooh. the 80s sorry sorry we, i won't say okay. anymore it's a good example <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it is a good example i don't mean to it, boo you <laughs> yes for sure we're booing woody uh the biggest um thing that comes to mind for me as you guys were kind of talking about it earlier in the pod was uh, <laughs> another another example that might elicit a few boos, yes. understandably, uh, the artist, right? Where you have uh, not only the connection of movies about movies and, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of playing with fantasy a little bit, but also very much talking about the silent film era um, using that actual uh, style. Um, and you have uh, a big gap, like I said. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything really between um, the 40s and 70s that really got into that. I think there was a lot more um, 
talking about uh, watching movies rather than the the connection between dreams and movies. Uh, probably some of my favorite examples going back to something I think Harry said earlier of like what it actually um, brings to mind because of the use of superimposition and kind of that dreamy quality uh, is actually um, David Lynch and his use of cinema in Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, where obviously that's way more surrealistic than what Keaton's doing here. In fact, there's an interesting tidbit where like one of his biographers, if I'm recalling correctly, asked him about surrealism when he was making this film. And, you know, he has no context for that because he's he's a performer first and foremost. He wasn't really, you know, a, a critical um, mind when it came to you know, literary studies or anything like that. So the the biographer asked him, like, um, were you attempting to, you know, do something surrealist? And he basically says, I, I don't know what you mean. I was just trying to make it feel like a dream, which is essentially <laughs> surrealism. <laughs> so, but I think they, that that's, that's a through line, absolutely, to, to Lynch and a lot of other more experimental uh, filmmakers of uh, the 80s and 90s. And you have... Uh, even like probably my favorite thing upon this rewatch uh, was actually that reveal, which hit different in 2021 than maybe when I watched it in college in the 2000s, was um, that, uh, you know, he's the hero in his fictionalized fantasy movie world who who solves, who, you know, is the investigator and solves the crime. But then when he wakes up at the very end, the reveal is that, uh, no, she figured it out herself. Yes. <laughs> she, did, she did not need him to go about this loneliness to figure out uh, the how to solve the crime. You're saying um, that the the how to be a detective book did not uh, <laughs> adequately prepare him for the life of crime solving. <laughs> no, and I, and I think that's also part that uh, you should give Keaton credit for is that he he always um, wanted to wink and nudge at the audience rather than um, try to explicitly be the hero i mean he he's the one um old story from his vaudeville days with his father who also is in sherlock jr as the girl's father um where in his his father would like violently throw him on the stage and as a kid uh and to try to get laughs you know slapstick i don't know throwing children is funny i guess but you know, first few times he did it he would have like a reaction um but then he, the more he did it the more he got used to it and so he started getting stone-faced and so he realized you know the power of not reacting and then that becomes um part of his character obviously in his silent films uh that's a a really good point that ties back to a discussion we i'm trying to remember the exact episode but we were having a conversation i think about jackie chan maybe it was like when we were talking about like police story a long time ago but we were talking about um, Jackie Chan as a movie star is someone who is so clearly like, like so like good at what he does from like uh, not just a kind of physical comedy standpoint, but all the stunts that he does. Um, but nevertheless, his character is like often the the kind of butt of the jokes and often the butt of a lot of violence himself. He's always getting like whacked in the nuts or he hits a pole or there's always a stunt where he's he's doing some wild stuff, but like he always takes a few kind of. 
uh, hits on the way, right? And we, I think we were comparing that to a lot of the kind of modern movie stars who like have things in their contract whenever they make a movie about how many times they can get hit, how much damage they can uh, be shown taking, because that kind of stuff is seen as like, um, you know, the opposite of mar- marketable if you're like a young, attractive movie star. And Keaton is kind of the same way where like Keaton is the butt of most of the jokes here and any sort of like wild physical stunts he's doing in this film are, you know, the it's during a dream, right? Like that's not actually who he is. Um, he is kind of this, you know, this, this nice guy, but kind of this schluppy guy who the most physical thing he actually does during his life is he, he kind of goes through some trash and like very nicely, like, uh, you know, makes a guy step on some trash in order to, to get it unstuck from his hand, right? But there is kind of a an interesting connection between um, these actors who are not afraid to get hit a little bit or to be the butt of a joke or to kind of come off as silly uh, in in order to advance um, the film. Yeah, I'm really, really glad you brought that up because that was sort of exactly where I was going to. And I think that there's an intersection between all of those things that sort of elevates what they're doing with the craft here beyond gimmick, which is to say that like there is a reason why uh, they're making the audience think about this and there are think about the, the craft. And there is a reason why Buster Keaton is sort of the butt of the jokes, right? And it's because this is all supposed to be so inclusionary and democratizing, right? Like the relationship to dreams in cinema is that dreams are also aspirational in so many ways, right? Like Sherlock Holmes Jr., this character is a character who always wanted to be a detective. That's sort of his defining trait. That's also the trait that gets his uh, bride-to-be, his paramour, to have enough faith in him to uh, solve the mystery herself is she thinks to herself basically like, I don't think that that type of person would do something like this. Uh, and she's she's right, right? And so like there's a really fascinating thing there where it's like your dreams and the way that you can use these dreams to find out what's important to you can be something that makes you more like who you are and, and allows you to actually sort of enact that in reality. And there's a really interesting contrast, like you said, Aaron, between the inclusionary action stars like Jackie Chan and Buster Keaton, who despite being some of the most impressive physical specimens maybe of all time, right? They're primarily sort of regarded as funny people and approachable people. Whereas like you think about the Stallones and the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of like the eighties, and they're all supposed to be about exclusionary. They're all supposed to be about like how amazing and unattainable this idea is. And like, if you looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you would be able to do things like this, but nobody will ever look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So nobody will ever be able to do things like this. There's a really interesting interplay happening there. Right. And it, I think it, it like ties into what we wanted to do with movies versus what we wanted to do with those action movies. Right. And like the idea of sort of escapism as in fact, enrichment and sort of like um, applicable to life the way that Sherlock Holmes's version is, right? Where like we take things away from these movies and we we come away with a different and maybe arguably better understanding of ourselves and what we want and sort of like how we can be versus sort of like escapism being like, I want to depart from the world entirely and I want to um, inhabit a different idea um, it's it's a subtle distinction, right? Because they're both forms of escapism, but one of them is sort of inclusionary and saying like everybody wants this and everybody like can sort of have something like this, right? Like even if you are just the film projectionist, you can have these fantasies and the fantasies can have some sort of effect on who you are versus like, you know, Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger where it's like if you were John Matrix, 
you would be a badass. And wouldn't Are it be you saying fun I don't look like John Matrix? Uh, you're getting there, man. I, Thanks, I mean, man. You're working. It, it, Listen, you know, course, team's not a there. number, but I appreciate it. You can't look like Patrick Swayze and John Matrix. Unfortunately, That's true. Not at the same That's time. That's true. Well, uh, speaking of democratizing, I want to democratize our uh, last few minutes of the podcast. We're coming up on nearly an hour here by opening it up to uh, the group for your your favorite bits, your favorite gags, your favorite, I guess, moments. I, I imagine there are a few standouts, but uh, you know, with five people, we got to have some variety here. Uh, looks like Cody is up first. Sure. And this is, I mean, it, it was a great uh, a bit of spectacle and also aided by audience reaction as well. Uh, I, there was a moment when Keaton was, he was standing on the roof of a building and this was, um, I, I think, maybe a, a precursor to the big sort of uh, chase scene at the end. But he was uh, on the roof of a building and there's this big mechanical arm that was upright that he sort of gets onto and then that arm sort of goes down 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 lowers him into a moving vehicle and as that happens or or like while that while that was happening uh there's a person somewhere in the audience that just like (laughs) exclaimed oh my god uh it was (laughs) (laughs) what if there was a what if there was a slide whistle (laughs) going down now that's what that stunt needed it is honestly like you joke. That would have been a great moment. Yeah, there was, there was no dramatic tension there. It was all just like somebody's life is going to end type tension. Can, uh, which I, would can have been... I ask the 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 two? Because I, I was curious. I wanted to, to ask earlier, but I, uh, uh, we kind of moved on. But how was the audience participation? Uh, participate, how was the audience reaction to the stuff? Because I, I got to imagine it would have been very great to see yeah. this one in a film or at a very theater. Good. Uh, there were a lot of folks, uh, you know, either cheering or, you know, gasping uh, at almost every bit. Um, there was right in front of where Cody and I were sitting and it was a packed house. Uh, there was a young kid who was just like the most innocent and pure reactions to everything. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of like we were talking about the experience of seeing this among other people just flatten everybody to the same level. Like you can be in awe, but you and you can be the most like reserved person, but you're going to make noise when you see these things and you hear other people making noise at these things. Uh, it is, it was a really good, really good performance and experience at the, at the theater itself. Uh, anybody else? Oh, well, sorry, Aaron. Uh, I'll, I'll say that my, uh, my favorite stunt, uh, and I, I mentioned it briefly earlier was the, uh, magic, uh, like briefcase, uh, that, that, uh, Keaton, dove through that that was my favorite uh i could not figure out supposedly that was done with the the actor like lying horizontally and having like you know just long wearing clothes and then you know keaton kind of jumps through and then the actor would like lower their kind of feet back to the ground and then walk as if Mm -hmm. they were always vertical but like i ran that back like six times and could i was like is this like you were essentially one of the goons that was trying to find buster keaton at that point you were the guy (laughs) who was democratizing by make me yeah turning me into like an everyday gangster yes that was (laughs) that 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 was my favorite stunt yes aaron the goomba uh my favorite is can we do like bits instead of stunts because yeah i think all the stunts definitely are amazing but uh I, I can't believe how much I laughed at the stupidest little bit 
of him pulling out the magnifying glass to make the diamond ring look it's bigger. so good <laughs> it's so good especially because like uh, you know it harkens back to the the whole title of the film and the the concept of the detective and uh just something so simple and uh hilarious and i mean i'm a i'm a dad now so like dad jokes are going to kill me way more <laughs> than i think they would have uh when i saw it back in college I, uh, I'm glad you opened the door to bits rather than like one-off stunts and gags because my one of my favorite moments of this movie, like the first moment that had me laughing out loud was pretty early in the dollar bit where he's sifting through the garbage at the movie theater for an extra dollar and he finds one. And of course, I mean, I don't need to explain the whole thing, but each person that he sequentially uh, gives dollars to gives like explanations of what it looked like. And when he's on his last dollar, he realizes he's going to have to give it to the poor old lady who just showed up because somebody's been lying about you know their dollar being lost. Um, and, and everybody has been using like the same hand signals to signify what the dollar, like the shape of the dollar and the Eagle on it and stuff. And you just see like an unbroken shot of just him, not the person's reaction next to him, not the person who's asking for the dollar, just him. (laughs) And, And he's like, he's sifting through the garbage and she's describing it and he's, he just like performs those motions. He's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the rectangular one. So resigned. It's, it's the one that's about five (laughs) inches long and, and, you know, and with the wings and stuff. And it's just like that, that is physical, like the tiniest, most nuanced expressions that would have gotten completely lost if the shot was wider. And it definitely would have been like maybe overplayed in 2021. If you know, a movie came out today doing that, but just to like see that level of man, this person is right next to me making funny faces. It was just a very basic, basic sense of humor to that i'm really glad you brought up that bit because it's also one of my favorites just also maybe one of the most impressive in a different way in that it's it's literally just making something out of nothing right it's like yeah buster keaton can literally just take a pile of garbage and four people and turn it into a really good high concept joke like out of nothing right it was like that joke had so many stages and had so many levels i love where the guy actually finds all the money at the end and then walks off with it it's <laughs> really great um i think my i have a couple favorites i think that the the scene transitions that Cody mentioned in the movie theater are uh, some of my favorites. Um, I just, I, I thought that was so clever and such a fun way to sort of like um, lampshade what we were doing here. Uh, and also I, I loved how it was always like just set up just so that like, as soon as he was getting used to one setting, it would change into another one and he would be plunged into danger again. That's how I feel like sometimes, man, you know? Uh, and then um, the other one is, uh, well, I mean like the whole chase sequence is so good, but I love that like they use, um, they use dialogue very sparingly in this movie, but I thought it was such a good deployment of it to make it very clear that Buster Keaton thought that the dude was still on the back of the motorcycle the whole time. Mm-hmm. So you keep saying things like, oh, be careful, like one of us might get hurt while all of this like crazy shit is unfolding all around them. Um, and then I, I guess my favorite bit from this, the chase is when... Um, uh, he is uh, on that like collapsing bridge and the the bridge like collapses just so that he ends up continuing to drive because it looks so fucking awesome. Like it just I can't believe that they pulled that off. That was pretty crazy. Um, the motorcycle scene actually has another one of the hair bits wherein uh, it's before the guy has actually fallen off of the motorcycle. So it's him and Buster and Buster is riding on the handlebars and he's like trying to explain where they're going and where they should go and stuff. And he like sort of just sort of casually like like leans in a very bacchanalia type way back toward the guy like what you thinking about type type pose uh it was just i don't know like that very i don't know it it worked at a basic level for me um any other final thoughts we should switch out before we get to our final segment of the show um i saw the the final gag coming 
where I, then it shows the babies and, and it cuts back to him and he's sort of like scratching his head like what did I get myself into <laughs> amazing like a perfect final joke what a great movie this is it really is. What, a, it really is. what about uh, what about Keaton turning over the box of chocolates so that she can see the price? <laughs> I thought that <laughs> was a really that one really made me chuckle too. The beginning of this movie, despite not having that many stunts, has quite a few very good jokes. Uh, yeah, chuckle worthy. I think it's a great way to ramp you up to the more zany stuff in the movie. Um, well, hell, I think that uh, should probably wrap up our actual discussion. Um, and Chris, as I mentioned, would you be able to help us lead into our final segment of the show uh, as orchestrated by Harry in a second here? Well, do I get to make a fool of myself? Uh, you, that's all you get to do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Then I'm in. Excellent. Cool. So this is the final segment of our show. It is the segment that we like to call... <gasps> Cody's, Cody's noties. noties. Listen, uh, that's it's an angelic choir, is what it is. That was beautiful. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, no fools to be made uh, of you fine folks. Uh, the only fool here is me. Um, which, hey, by the way, thank you uh, as always for that dreamlike introduction. Uh, today, I figured we'd use this opportunity to indulge in uh, another iteration of Trilibs, which. Uh, for those unaware, this is our attempt at sort of recreating the world-famous uh, family-friendly question mark game known as Mad Libs, where we take a story that uh, has some holes that need to be uh, filled by parts of speech, vocabulary words, things like that. You don't exactly know what's going where, uh, and by the end of it, you have a, a zany tale to be told. So what I've done is I've constructed a story somewhat inspired by the movie we all watched and that we just finished talking about. And so I'll ask uh, you fine folks in the randomly uh, internet uh, order randomizer generated order of uh, Harry, Chris, Aaron, and Jason, and then just sort of on a loop until we've got everything, uh, you know, once we've taken care of all of them, uh, I will collect some things from you. We'll we'll put a, a story together. Hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a, a nice yarn to tell. And starting with Harry, uh, Harry, from you, could I please get a type of job? Um, film projectionist. Now, where on earth could you have gotten that yeah, idea I'm, from? Yeah, I'm incredibly creative. Uh, I've always said that about you. Uh, moving along to Chris. Uh, Chris, from you, could I please get a name? Rudiger. <laughs> Perfect. Really but... wanted to make me look bad there, Chris, huh? I get I it. I do. I get it. Uh, it yeah. Hey, um, I'm stalling a little bit because I can't get the find and replace to work. Um, spoiler alert, this is going to uh, fill up a lot of spaces here. Wow. Look at that. All right. We're good to go. Um, excellent. Who do we got next? We've got Aaron. Aaron, from you, could I please get uh, the name of a company? Uh, Enron. Enron. Have you wow. used that one before? I can't remember. I don't Maybe. think I've ever been asked the name of a company, but yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I may or may not have just asked that because I needed to find it and replace again. Um, but I genuinely wanted to know the answer to that question, so thank you for that. Uh, Jason, moving along to you, could I please get a number? 69. Of nice. course. I don't even know why I ask. Uh, do, 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 do. Harry, uh, back to you. Could I please get from you a name? Um, Jonathan. All right. And 
I'm just uh, trying to figure out how many. Harry does not need help Jonathan. making his answers sound bad. Zing. Uh, What's wrong with the name Jonathan? Here. I've got a lot of friends named Jonathan. Yeah. It's a perfectly mm-hmm. fine name. Name one. Jonathan Laterald. I went to high school with him. <laughs> hmm. That on. sounds. Uh, sounds shout out to jo- yeah. I was going to say shout out to Jonathan Lateral. That sounds like an alias. Uh, moving ahead, uh, back to you, Chris. Uh, from you, could I please get a noun? <sighs> Force. Ooh, spicy. All right, I like it. Let's do this now. Back over to Aaron. Aaron, from you, could I please get a verb? Um, jump. Perfect. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get an adjective? Forcefully. Nope. Forceful. I'm Perfect. a writer. I, full disclosure, I can, you know, I'll, I, I might tweak it if it needs a little bit of grammatical tweaking. What? So what? that's like, I mean, I, it's, I like, didn't sign up for this. Uh, there was paperwork we needed to fill out for this podcast. All right, you're going to have to send that my way. Um, we'll handle that off mic. Harry, from you, could I please get an emotion? And then after that, could you um, speak aloud uh, a name uh, or, or like, you know, a type of emotion that I can put into this game? <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to go with, uh, I, has Jason, have you used verklempt before? I feel like that's one you would have used. I would have, but I have not. Okay, then I'll go with verklempt. Okay, a quick note for listening. Um, I'm just now finding out that Zencaster wasn't actually recording my voice from this point on, which makes it kind of funny, but uh, won't make Cody's story make sense. Um, so I'm going to have to re-record some of these lines to make uh, the trilibs work this time. Uh, wish me luck. You're clamped. Um, I don't know if I've ever had to spell that out in my life, so we'll see. I'll remember how to pronounce that, um, or read that that phonetic pronunciation. Uh, Chris, an adjective, if you please. Uh, bittersweet. Ain't that the truth? It's a hell of um, an adjective. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, honestly, bravo. Um, you're bringing some good ones to the table here. Uh, Aaron, an emotion from you as well, if you please. Uh, disappointment. Oh, that's going to be bad with bittersweet. Oh, no, yeah, just disappointment. Okay. Hey, and maybe, I mean, it's Sunday. So, uh, I guess spoilers to our listeners. This is Sunday. That we're, forget I said anything. Pulling back the curtain. Uh, Jason, a number, please. I think I said uh, 420. Again, I don't even know why I ask. Um, yeah, it's okay. Harry, could I get from you an exclamation? Oh, my word. Oh, my word, indeed. Uh, very nice. Uh, back. Oh, let's see. Where are we here? Um, do, 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 do. Chris. Oh, from you. Could I also get an exclamation? Fuck yeah. Awesome. And do, do, do. I think we're getting near the end here. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get a number? Uh, 17. Very nice. And I'm doing one. I we've got. I believe we've got one more here. I'm just doing one last run through and talking as I go, so that there's no dead air. And all right, so Jason, uh, you get the honors. The last one here. Could I get from you the name of a movie? Uh, I think it was Project A. Beautiful. All right, 
Um, excellent. I think we've got everything filled in here. So without further ado, <clears throat> I present to you Trilibs colon Detective. There once was a film projectionist named Rudiger. More than anything, Rudiger wanted to be a detective. While working day after day at Enron, Rudiger couldn't help but daydream about being a detective. In their mind, they'd solved over 69 cases and returned uh, countless... Oh, Jesus, I missed one again. Harry, give me a known. Tigers. I could not have thought of a better one myself. Uh, and returned countless tigers back to their rightful owners. Say Rudiger's doing good work. Rudiger never thought they'd get the chance for real until the day when their boss, named Jonathan, reported a missing force. That's a tough thing to lose. Rudiger followed the proper steps first. They jumped every single one of their co-workers, but to no avail. Then Rudiger picked out the most uh, forceful people and followed them closely. This turned up no results, but it made many of the people Rudiger, uh, Rudiger followed very verklempt. Nailed it. Rudiger even tried putting uh, putting up bittersweet posters for the missing force. Surely at least one person in a city of four, uh, 420 people had seen it, but apparently no one had. Disappointed from their efforts, Rudiger returned to Enron and collapsed on the floor. Oh my word! They shouted. It almost seemed that no one had taken the... Uh, it, it, I'll, let me try that again. It almost seemed that no one had taken the force. Just then, Rudiger got an idea. Later that day, Rudiger met with Jonathan in their office. They accused Jonathan of making up the theft. Fuck yeah, Jonathan shouted. You got me. There's an insurance cash out of $17 if anything happens to my force, and I wanted the money. Rudiger was remorseful. Not only was the force not missing after all, but it gave Rudiger the chance to be a real detective after all. Together, they took the rest of the day off and watched Project A while pondering the mysteries of life. The end. Here's where I thanked Cody, made fun of Jonathan, I think. Yeah, it was a great name, and it made a lot of sense in the context of the story. Thank you, Cody. And then thanked our guest, Chris, a lot. Uh, you should find him online. Um, I also asked him for his uh, email address, physical address, and social security number, uh, just in my churlish, um, boyish fashion, in which I do. Uh, and I'm trying to fill the silence before he starts to say... <laughs> I'm going to not answer those last two bits of info, but yeah, I was I had it ready to go. Um, I'm at uh, Q-H-R-I-Z, Polly, P-O-L-L-E-Y, on Twitter, but my podcast... Uh, with my great co-host Dan is called Film Trace. We are at film underscore trace. We are starting up our fifth season of the show in just a few weeks when Halloween Kills comes out. Uh, I remarked here about how they do their show in seasons, um, which is uh, markedly more professional seeming than our own podcast. Um, I've always thought about doing that, uh, but it doesn't seem relevant because, I mean, how do you define seasons when you're talking about movies that play year-round? Um, maybe we could just cover them by, like, series? Like, series one would have been way back when we were talking about, uh, you know, early Trilove stuff. More recent ones could be when we were talking about the Vendors movies or the Peter Falk stuff. Uh, really, this is just me musing now, but um, I did want to give an outro and just say thank you very much for listening to Trilove. I'm Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus and follow our guest. Uh, thank you uh, again, Chris, so much for, for being here on this episode. Uh, also unrelated, leave it to us to talk 75 minutes about a 45 minute movie. You love to, to hear it question mark. Um, more importantly, you love to see it. Um, so go watch this movie. We all like it a whole bunch. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. 
yeah, echoing what Cody said, thanks, Chris. That was super fun. Um, this movie's great. You should check it out. Uh, all of the things Jason said also. Um, I didn't realize we were shouting out our roles on the podcast the way Jason did, but um, I'm Harry Mackin. I just sort of show up to this one, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, yes, echoing, uh, thank you, Chris, for being here. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, Jason might host, but I coast. That's what I'll, uh, that's what I'll say. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. There is an old proverb which says, don't try to do two things at once and expect to do justice to both. This is the story of a boy who tried it. <laughs>